Romans chapter 4 is our passage this morning, and if you have your Bibles, please open up there. Ten years ago, Richard Dawkins wrote his best-selling book, The God Delusion, and one statement out of that book in particularly has been popularized and repeated over and over and over again across the worldwide web is this statement where Dawkins says, when one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. That statement has been latched onto by so many people because it it really encompasses or encapsulates what is the attitude, increasing attitude of society around us People believe that religion, more and more they believe it, that it is the reflection of some sort of deficiency, mental deficiency, on the part of those who adhere to it. Some sort of deficit or, or even some sort of fear of facts, fear of reality, fear of knowledge or whatever it might be. Dawkins and those like him assume that For someone to have faith is to be incompatible with intellectual rigor and sophisticated thinking. And so Dawkins writes this. He says, quote, religion is scarcely distinguishable from childhood delusions like the imaginary friend and the boogeyman under the bed. Unfortunately, the God delusion possesses adults. A delusion is something that people believe in spite of a total lack of evidence. In another place, he writes this. He says, one of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding, end quote. Those are basically the assessments of the world on our faith and what we do not only here here every week as a part of our corporate worship, but what is the substance of our life? It is delusional. It's incompatible with maturity. It's incompatible with adulthood. It is only satisfactory to people who do not want answers, who are not really asking questions, those who are thoroughly backwards. But you see the issue with people like Dawkins or every other skeptic and unbeliever who's out there and evaluating religion and churches is that they have fundamentally misunderstood what the Bible teaches about faith. Because while it is not reason that we hold to according to naturalistic assumptions of these skeptics, it is far from unreasonable. Far from an effort to avoid understanding, it's often that which has faced the hardest questions of life, the most difficult realities that make up our everyday existence, and it has has confronted them or thought about them, not calculating according to the answers that are limited only to what we can verify and what we can test or even what we can see. But it understands that there is a knowledge that necessarily extends beyond our grasp. It goes beyond what we can verify, goes beyond what we can test, and a knowledge that is with God. It's knowledge that God has, and God's the one who knows everything. 
And the one who knows everything is the one who's most qualified to speak on what is true. And he has. And he's given us that message in the scripture. This is the character of faith. It isn't blind acceptance of tradition without asking questions. The character of faith is that which has faced the arguments and the claims and the rationalizations against it. And in the end, it has found those to be lacking and wanting in spite of the prevalence of sin and the realities of the darkness of this world, the confusion that's all around us. It's faced all of those things and recognized that rationalism and and the reasonableness of if you want to say the reasonableness of this rationalistic and naturalistic assumption, those do not have the full answers of life. In fact, they shift seemingly all the time with the winds of change. Faith is determined that only the one who knows all things, that is God, and His Word is more reliable and trustworthy than all the natural observations and opinions of men or women in this life. Now, this is really the essence of Paul's message in Romans chapter 4. He's writing about faith. And he's already described at the end of chapter 3 in Romans, he's described to his readers that faith is the means by which God counts us just. It isn't the things that you do, it isn't, uh, it isn't the, the efforts that you put forward or the religious uh, uh, deeds and all that that you accumulate through your life, it isn't even your prayers, it isn't even the merits of some other person that, uh, that, 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 that has gone before you in this life, some other, uh, some other saint in that sense, but it's only by faith that the merits of Christ Jesus are applied to our account. In that sense, he says, faith is counted as righteousness. It is counted toward us as righteousness. And that's really what this chapter is about. It's about a faith that is counted, the kind of faith that is counted. And what Paul's trying to really demonstrate to us is the nature of that faith. And he does it by taking us back to the life of, uh, if you will, the originator of not only Judaism, but the originator of Christianity, the original uh, faithful person who is exemplified in Scripture, and that is Abraham. He puts all of this on display through the life of Abraham, who establishes the pattern of what genuine faith looks like, the kind of faith that God takes into account, the kind of faith that, that is involved when He credits to you a righteousness that's not your own. Now just listen to the way that Paul describes it here in Romans chapter 4. We can pick up really back in verse 13. He says, The promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but uh, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his own sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now Abraham's life in Paul's uh, presentation here, Abraham's life really presents to us the true nature of saving faith. This is what the faith of a real believer looks like. This is what the faith of someone who is genuinely saved looks like. And while all the historical particulars of Abraham's life may or may not be familiar to you, the nature of the faith that Paul says was uh, active in his life so long ago is exactly the same kind of faith that God is looking for from every person, you and I included. Now, as Paul goes through this, he highlights for us, I think, four facets of this faith that God will count as righteousness. Four facets of the kind of faith that when you meet God one day, if you have this kind of faith, your sins are wiped away And he credits you with a righteousness that is not your own. One which actually makes you fit and worthy for heaven. What are those facets? Well, you see the first one in 16 and 17 of this chapter. It's a faith that is directed by what God says. A faith, we might say, directed by the word of God. When we talk about a faith that God counts as righteous, we need to distinguish it from that sort of vague notion that floats sometimes in our culture of a person of faith. It seems like it's still popular today to speak of faith, but faith with no real object. You hear it through the media or promoted in the culture. You just need to have faith. People make whole movies about how wonderful and and incredible it is just to believe. They sing songs about, you know, if you just believe, you can go to Disney World and walk on the streets of a pretend land and have lights and fairies all around you and people just taken up with this wonderful notion of just believing. But believing in what? They never place an object of that belief before you. The whole idea is, is as long as you just have 
something, as long as you believe, it doesn't really matter what you believe in, it's just important to have some sort of belief. But that kind of faith is useless. Maybe worse than useless, it's really a self-deceptive, superstitious way of living. But the faith that Abraham had is a faith in the revealed Word of God. This is what Paul's saying in verses 16 and 17, that the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world didn't come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For it is uh, written, he says, the adherents of the law are to be heirs of faith. This is the promise that was initially given to him back in verse uh, 13. And then you see in verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and may be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Not to the adherents of the law only, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now, we don't need to get into all the weeds of of all the historical background, but the thing that really is highlighted in there is that God said something. God revealed something. Abraham probably would have told you before he ever heard this word from God. He probably would have claimed to be someone who believed in God. But even at that point, his faith was not counted as righteousness. It wasn't until the revealed word of God came to him that he had the challenge of his faith to believe in what God said. And God had said something very specific to him. God had told him, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you a child. And not only that, but through your child, you're going to be the father of many nations. So out of you is going to come a heritage of children that's going to grow and multiply and expand and and make up so many peoples of the earth. This was the promise that came. And it was the belief in that promise It was a belief at that moment when God said his faith counted as righteousness, or it was counted as righteousness. All of this, of course, came, we're told, Paul says later, when he was almost a hundred years old. He was 99 years old, as a matter of fact. He originally heard the promise when he was 75 years old. Paul quotes from Genesis at a later time when he was 99 years old. But nevertheless, the issue is still the same. He was well past the childbearing years. He was well beyond what was naturally possible. Well beyond what was biologically feasible. As he considered not only what Paul says, the deadness of his own body, his body had long past the procreative years, but he considered even the deadness of his wife's womb. ESV translates it here as barren. It would be better translated as deadness, literally. So he's considering here these these realities that God has made a promise to him, and yet it's a promise that can't be realized through any sort of natural processes. And so he had to believe God in spite of what was verifiable by his own experience. And this was a point where his faith intersected with God in such a way that it was counted to him as righteousness. That 
that it came to him as a challenge and he fulfilled God's demand of believing and God credited it to him. These, um, these are the promises that Paul has in mind. And responding to these promises and responding to these commands that God revealed are the things that God asks of us. You know, it's different for us. We have much, much more that's been revealed to us. We have, obviously, the Scripture that's been revealed to us. We have all the Old Testament that came subsequently to Abraham. And then we have the New Testament that came even after that when the apostles recorded their own words and they recorded the, the uh, deeds of Christ for us. But most importantly, we have Jesus Christ who is the greatest revelation of God. We're told in the book of Hebrews that God, who in past times and in past seasons spoke to us by means of the prophets, has in recent days spoken to us by His own Son, who is the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His character. So Jesus Christ is is presented to us in the Scripture as the greatest revelation that God has ever given to us, the exact image of God. He is God in human flesh. And so we have this revelation now, and the challenge for us is to believe in it, is to believe in this message that has come to us, the Word of God, as John calls it, that was with God in the beginning and has now become flesh and dwelt among us. Not only that, but there is the resurrection, which presents to us a Savior who isn't conquered by death or by sin, and has made known to us God's power and victory over sin in the grave. All of these things are revealed to us now. All of these things are the challenge for us to fully believe. Much like Abraham, who believed that God was able to do all these things, he was able to, as, as Paul says there at the end of verse 17, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is basically what Abraham had to believe. He had to believe the same things that you and I believe, different application, but the same belief. He had to believe that God was able to bring things into existence. He believed that because he understood that if God didn't bring things to existence, there was no explanation for where they came from. There was no explanation of where the world originated. If you go from non-existent matter to existent matter, then you must have a creator. And he understood that God was that creator. God was the one who spoke, we might say, ex nihilo, out of nothing, and brought everything into existence. This was the core foundation of what Abraham believed. And if God is, of course, able to do that, if God is able to speak and the world's come into existence, it's a small thing that He could bring about the birth of a baby in even a barren womb. It's a small thing that He could bring about the resurrection of a Savior from the dead. Isaiah 46 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end of from the beginning and the ancient things 
which have not yet been done. He's speaking about his prophecy. God has always demonstrated his power by by foretelling things long before they happened, revealing them in his word. Saying, Isaiah goes on to say, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And so when you hear the word of God, you believe it because it comes from God, and God cannot lie. And this is exactly what Abraham believed. He believed what God said. His faith was directed by that. It wasn't just some sort of ill-defined optimism about life. He didn't just sort of have a, a, a happy-go-lucky, Lord, sort of let things roll off your back, just sort of believe in nothing, but just go through life with some sort of nebulous faith. He believed what God had said. This was the substance of his belief. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the way faith operates. is isn't just some hazy form of optimism. It is focused on what God says. Secondly, you'll see in verse 18 and 19, Abraham's example teaches us that a faith that is counted as righteousness is a faith that evaluates its own inadequacies. It evaluates its own inadequacies. Paul says it in verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. In other words, Abraham was well aware he was not some unthinking person. He evaluated empirically the evidences that were around him. He fully recognized what was capable or what he was capable of within the naturalistic realm. He didn't hide from those kinds of things. But against those things, in hope he believed against hope, that he would become the father of many nations as it had been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Here he is, believing hope against hope. This is the real heart of Paul's message about Abraham's faith. A skeptic may picture a Christian as someone who has buried their head in the sand, who wants to conveniently ignore the hard realities of science or the world around him. But that certainly doesn't describe Abraham. He wasn't ignoring anything. He was a man who fully understood the difficulties of the naturalistic world. He considered his own body. He took a hard look at the natural circumstances around him. He understood the phenomenon of nature. He reflected on the facts of the situation. He pondered the information that was available to him. He clearly was aware of all of the ways that it, all the ways in which it pointed. It pointed to childlessness, it pointed to hopelessness, it pointed to defeat and it pointed to despair. He got that. He understood that. But for Abraham, those were not the only facts that he considered. Because God had spoken. And he had to take into account the word of God. Because God said, your offspring will be like the sands of the sea. So as... A truly rational person, he had to take the full scope of the data that was given to him into consideration. And one of the calculations on Abraham's part was 
that while he had limitations in himself, while his own body was as good as dead, while he couldn't necessarily see how all of this was going to work out, while he couldn't verify all the ways that God was going to do this, he had a word from God which was more sure than everything that he had experienced. You see, the modern assumption is that you can only believe really in what you experience with your senses, what you touch, what you hear, what you taste, what you see, what you smell. They believe that the grass is green in the spring. They believe that more confidently because they believe they see it every year and that is what is tangible and touchable more than any philosophical truth. They believe it because this is empiricism. And you can really, really believe in those things that you see and touch. And you can mix in with that some kind of rationalism. To a lesser degree, the modern mind leans on rationalism. Those things that may not be observable through the senses, but can be deduced through logic and mathematics and and those kinds of things. But the real foundation of popular belief is empiricism. And so, in the mind of a modern, if you can't perceive and examine it in some way through the senses, the modern mind assumes that it must be a fantasy. Or if you can't explain it through rationalism and through some sort of formula, it is speculation at best. And this is where they classify religion in the Word of God. Empiricism survives on what it believes to be the plain and simple facts that are verifiable. But really, is that the way that we come to know truth? Do we know truth only because we have examined and verified everything? Not really. I mean, you know lots of things that you haven't fully examined and verified, right? You accept them based on the testimony of people who've told them to you. In fact, if you got really, really serious and wanted to verify everything you supposedly know, there's no way you could do it. Just take mortality. And when we're told that, you know, some X number, 100,000 people die each week across the world as new and new, more and more people are being born, you can't independently verify those facts. It'd be impossible for you to be there at every death and make sure that every person is literally dead and be there at every birth and verify that somebody you know, really came out of the womb. It would be difficult for you to do that. Impossible, really. That's just one fact. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are going on that you just accept the testimony of people. You don't believe things because you verify all of them. You believe things because you think that the source from which you got the information is reliable. But if you get the information from God... Is he reliable? That's the question. Is God a reliable source of information? Well, I would think so. He's the only one who can know everything. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who sees everything. The reality is that the world may believe that it is rational and empirical and all of those other things. But what they really are is just afraid to accept the realities of God. They just want to believe what they want to believe. 
They want to put all their trust in themselves. They want to put all their trust in, in those people that make them feel comfortable. But when someone comes along and tells you something that is perhaps inconvenient for your life, the challenge for you when it comes from God is a challenge of your faith, a challenge of your eternity. Because to believe those things in the Word of God, to believe Jesus Christ and His his life and death and resurrection, those those are issues of eternal significance. They come to us by great testimony from the Word of God and by the ongoing testimony of people who have come to know Him. These are the facts that dictate our life. It's not irrational at all. It is just the recognition that the sources of information that we rely on all the time are themselves corrupt if they're not an incorruptible God. They're corrupt. They make poor judgments. They, 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 they use poor standards. They, they don't have all of the data, all the criteria. They make assumptions and projections and all of those things that prove themselves to be wrong over time. There's no man, no group, no organization that's ever existed that can fully know everything. This is where Abraham was. He, he didn't need, a, he didn't need a, a, a school of science. He didn't need some, some organization out there. He didn't need all this stuff. I mean, he has, was common sense enough to realize that you can't have a baby when you're 99 years old. He understood the biological processes that go through a woman's body. He understood all of those things, but it wasn't the only information that he was taking in because he was taking in information from the God who calls all things into existence. This was Abraham's faith. He believed, or excuse me, in hope, he believed against hope that God would do as He says. We can add here a third element, a third factor of this faith that is counted as righteous. It grows when it's tested. Verse 20, Paul says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. Abraham didn't allow the outward circumstances to loom in his mind and compromise his trust, but he continued to yield his heart to God. His faith grew stronger. And that is the nature of true faith. You see, faith isn't destroyed by challenges. You see, you see this talked about throughout Scripture. Jesus talks, for example, about a man who goes out and sows seed on a field. And some of the seed falls on hard, rocky soil, never penetrates. Some of the seed is is uh, you know, picked up by the birds, he says, and carried away from that soil. Some of it, he says, falls into rocky soil and it springs up and it shows an initial sort of evidence of faith, but then the sun comes out and scorches it and it dies away. And you have all these. You have the faith, you know, even he says, it begins to spring up and then it's choked out by the cares of the world and the love of riches. And we've all sort of witnessed it through our life. People who maybe at a young age in their life, they made some sort of expression of faith, but their faith hadn't been tested. And then there comes a test of their faith. 
It comes in all kinds of ways. It might be a, a, a breakdown in their family. Their parents are divorced. Or it might be a loss of their job. Or it could be an issue of illness or, or cancer. Or it could be persecution that comes from their friends. All kinds of tests in all kinds of ways. But there comes a season where your faith is tested. And then you find out whether or not it is genuine faith. Whether it is true faith. And what he's saying here about Abraham is that he didn't waver. But his faith actually grew stronger. He was more convinced. You have to understand, Abraham received a promise from God when he was 75 years old. And for 15 years, he walked on in that faith with no daily assurance that it was going to come about. I mean, his, his wife had to think he was a mad person. But he continued to believe, he continued to profess his faith in God. Continued to hold to it. In fact, Paul says that his faith was continuing to grow. Continuing to flourish in the midst of all these difficulties. Rather than fading away, it just got deeper. Challenges come to your faith. Genuine faith doesn't collapse. Instead, you draw near to God. The more difficult life becomes, the greater you have to cling to Him. The more confidence you put in Him. And you find... Sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big, you find that He is trustworthy, He is faithful, He is perfect, He is caring for you. And a believer's faith grows through that. Those difficulties do not destroy genuine faith. They couldn't destroy Abraham's faith. They couldn't destroy Job's faith. You remember Job had difficulty after difficulty, trial after trial. He got to the point where his wife was telling him, curse God and die. God had broken him down so low that he said, even if he slays me, yet I will trust in him. That's genuine faith. And this was Abraham's faith. Years of waiting that wore on and on and on. Month after month, seeing that nothing was happening. He was tempted. At times he even ran outside the will of God. He was unfaithful and even slept with his, one of his servants to try to bring about this promise on his own means. And yet God says, that's not the way I'm going to fulfill it. And he would come back and he would recommit himself to trust in God until he reached the point where he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully able, fully tested in his faith. A fourth element of this faith, a faith that is counted as righteous then, applies to you and I. Those first three sort of summarize Abraham's life. Now this applies to you and I. And Paul tells us in verse 22, that is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his own sake, but for ours also. As Paul now turns his attention away from Abraham and to us and tells us that a faith that is counted as righteousness is a faith that believes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. It will be counted to us who believe. 
in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the challenge of Christianity. This is really what the the message is that we, if you will, confront the world with, is the reality of a man who conquered death. Because that's really the big issue. I mean, we all have sort of trials and difficulties and all these other things, but the big issue, the one that sort of looms on the horizon for everyone, is the reality of death. It's what everyone is so... uh, Uh, consumed with when it comes to their health and their diet and their fitness and their safety and their security cameras and their gun laws and all of these other things. It's all oriented around one big main idea is to avoid death. And this is what, what we're told in the scripture is that there's one person who overcame death and it's Christ Jesus. There were other resurrections, by the way. You see them throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. People were raised from the dead, but they were always raised from the dead. Not to incorruptibility, but to a further corruption and eventual death. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. The difference with Christ is he rose from the dead never to die again. Now you have to understand why that's significant. It's because the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the world with Adam and Eve. And He created them not to die. He created them without death. But He told them that if they sinned, the penalty would be death. The wages of their sin is death. He says, in the day that you sin, in the day that you eat of a forbidden tree in the midst of the garden, in that day you will surely die. And that's exactly what happened. When they sinned, they experienced death. They experienced it internally. When their spirits died to God, that is to say that their spirits, uh, their their soul, you might say, was was, uh, um, depraved and turned away from God. It was now hostile toward God. In fact, when God came to meet them in the garden again, they hid from Him. They wanted nothing to do with God. So they had a sort of, in their inner man, a death, But even in their outer man, their body began to decay, began to fade until it eventually died. So death came into the world as a direct result of sin. It had never been in the world before. Death had never existed before. Sin came into the world. Death came with it. And that has been the consequence for every person now born into the world. They're born under this curse of death. Because they're born under the curse of sin. Every person who has come subsequent to Adam and Eve, born in this world, born under sin, has been sort of plagued with that, the fear of death, as Hebrews chapter 2 says. Until Christ Jesus, who was born in this world, we're told, without sin. And not being subject to sin, he wasn't subject to death. He was born free from the penalty of death. But he died, didn't he? He died not because of his own sins. He died because of the sins of those that he came to redeem. He died in their place. He died in order to take upon himself their penalty. He suffered something that wasn't the consequence of his own doing. 
Not the consequence of his own sin, I should say. He suffered something that was the consequence of our sin. But he wasn't left to that corruption. He wasn't left to that penalty because the Scripture tells us that three days later he rose from the grave. Now the significance of that is that it proves that sin itself had been defeated because if death is the penalty of sin and death cannot hold a man in the grave, then therefore sin has no grip and hold on a man and sin itself has been defeated. And so the resurrection becomes central to everything that we believe. This is why Paul says very clearly, these words were written for our sake And it will be counted to us as righteousness who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Because to believe that God raised Him from the dead is to believe that death no longer has a grip on mankind. Because sin no longer has a grip on mankind. This is what Paul is really talking about in verse 25. When he says that this Jesus whom God raised up, he was delivered up for our trespasses. He was, that was a reason that he died. And you'll notice he's, this, is, this is in the passive sense. You know, when he says he was delivered up, he's not talking about the Romans or he's not talking about the Jews who put him to death on the cross. He's talking about God. God is the one who delivered up Jesus Christ to death. He sent him to be a sacrifice for our sins. He delivered him up for our trespasses and raised him for our justification. You see the resurrection there? It is the victory over death and so it's the victory over sin. It is the victory over death and so it is the victory over sin. That's why Paul can say, that he was raised for our justification. So the challenge this Easter for you is this simple question. Do you have faith like Abraham? Is your faith going to be counted as anything when you meet God? You might say, yeah, I believe in God. I pray and I'll get in trouble. I pray all the time. You know, I just believe. You just got to have faith. You have to believe. None of that will count for anything. It doesn't really count for anything right now. But when you stand before God, what's going to count is that you have understood the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. That He came as God in the flesh, lived a life spotless before God, unworthy of any kind of punishment and yet he bore punishment on our behalf he was delivered up for transgressions and he was raised for justification you believe in those things the bible says like abraham your faith will be credited as righteousness you will be saved this is what paul says later on in romans that if we confess with our mouth jesus is lord and believe in our heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's our, our challenge to you. That's our call to you today. 
that this Easter you would respond to that message. That you would that you would confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you would believe God raised him from the dead, that you would respond today to God's word. If you're here this morning and you're hearing this message and you're realizing for the first time ever the message of God, you're hearing the word of God. If you want to respond this morning in belief, I encourage you to come see me. I'll be down here when we're done with the services this morning, I'd love to have a few moments to share with you further what God has revealed in His Word, what salvation is all about, how you can be right with God. Father, we're grateful for this message, so thankful for our Savior that we celebrate today, thankful that we have in Him all the fullness of God revealed in bodily form. And yet, He was the one who suffered in our place. We're thankful that in His suffering, He overcame the curse of sin and death. He overcame the penalty that was against us. He overcame your wrath. Lord, I pray this morning for those who are here, who are hearing this message and yet have never believed. Would you move in their hearts the way you did with Abraham, the way you did with us? Would you move in their hearts that they might repent, renounce their own resources, turn away from trusting in themselves, and put their trust in the Word of God? the message of salvation for all eternity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.